Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. What you're about to listen to is an interview that Adam and I recently conducted as part of our partnership with the Real Estate Forum and their Ref Club Initiative. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Real Estate Forum Club Thinkin. This is the first of many, so I hope you do enjoy it. The topic today is how real estate and technology strategies are working together during the pandemic and leading into the economic recovery. We do have two experts with us here today. Casey Witkowitz is the founder of Rycom Corporation and Brett Miller, the CEO of Candorel. And I will remind you, this forum today is open to everybody. And I believe the next handful of these events will be after that. You have to be a member of the Ref Club. So I do suggest that you join. There's a lot of value in there other than just these forums. There's a, a lot of content to consume there. Anyways, let's jump into the meat of it here. Just as a quick introduction, Brett, can you introduce yourself? That's a minute on your background and why you're an expert in technology strategies for real estate. Thanks very much, Adam and Aaron. So if I may, I'd like to start off with a correction because expert is a uh, big exaggeration. I would, I would qualify Casey as an expert and he's been my professor in real estate technology over the last five years. We're good partners, but uh, I am more the, uh, the commentary with regard to the operating platforms and user experience as it impacts the industry as opposed to being a specialist specifically in technology. As I say, pleasure to be out here as I look at a winter wonderland of my bedroom. I wonder if we'll ever get back to the city. I look forward to it. But Candrell is a Canadian real estate investor, developer, and manager. We're about 650 people strong, been in business for 45 years. We're in the six major cities of Canada, and we're active in multi-res, industrial, and office. And really, we work for institutional clientele, where we will, as a third-party manager or developer, build for them. But for the most part, we work as co-investor, where we work with institutional capital to invest and build and manage. And uh, we're the feet on the ground. The guys get their uh, fingernails dirty, the grit and the blood and the sweat and the tears, and uh, typically trying to uh, deliver the returns to our institutional investors. And later in this uh, conversation, I'll talk to you about what we've been doing over the last two years, particularly as it relates to technology and kind of the transformation of our platform in this direction. Brett, I'm not going to ask you to hold your fingernails up to the camera, but I know that yeah, Candorel does get their fingernails dirty on some of this uh, somebody's work. And if anybody in real estate, I'm sure if you've driven around a major metropolitan area, you've seen seen a sign somewhere. Casey, can I ask you to introduce yourself? And as Brett already alluded to, I think maybe here the word expert might be more applicable. So why are you an expert in this? Oh, geez, this is a hard act to follow. But I'm going to throw it back a little bit to Brett as well. Uh, Thank you for having me on board, uh, Aaron and, and Adam. But it's collaboration. The industry, when you, any industry you work in, I've been in the industry, uh, technology, applying technology in industry for now three and a half decades. So Brett's very kind when he says that I'm an expert, but it takes two of us to understand. Uh, first of all, he shares with me his wisdom in terms of what real estate needs and wants are. And I hope to be able to translate them with technology and help him achieve his goals. And so and when that marriage works, it works really, really well. And so my company, Rycom, uh, we're a national company. Uh, uh, we're 100 plus strong, and uh, we apply technology to many market verticals. The one that we spent a lot of time with over the last 20 plus years is real estate. Real estate is uh, probably sort of going through a transformation right now in its uh, current form, aging buildings, aging workforce. That's kind of the 
perfect apex to introduce technology and sort of the next generation of operating models. And that's really where, when you kind of marry the strategy level, if I have a conversation with Brett, it's really at the strategy level. My team works with his workbench and his properties. So being able to understand how technology works and affects people at the workbench level in the property and what the outcomes and the benefits are to the overall operations of the business that Brett would be interested in is key. And so that's the journey that we uh, narrate and work with him on and others. Thanks, Casey. We've got a handful of people, the Ref Club members watching this live, but I wanted to date stamp it for those that may be listening to this on different platforms later at a later date. It's currently February 3rd. We're all sitting at home still, as Brett alluded to, looking out his window at a snowy wonderland here. Let's just start. We have to just go through it. I mean, everybody's sick of it, but let's talk about COVID right now and just maybe set the table a little bit about how technology is going to impact real estate and the enterprise and the humans that use real estate. But maybe Brett, first, just talk about what your experience has been, maybe related to your employees, or if you have personal stories about the impact COVID's had on your business and you personally. Thanks for asking. Well, fortunately, on the personal side, families doing well, eager to get back to restaurants and travel, but that's really a a minor irritant compared to the difficulties some some other families have had to go through. So uh, healthy and all, whether for their students or or working in their jobs, uh, everyone's working remotely and working on Zoom. At the corporate side, you know, it was uh, early days and the first wave was everyone panicked and uh, moved very quickly and surprisingly quickly to virtual platforms. And I guess if you're talking technology, we are all experts at uh, Zoom or Teams or the other platforms that, that seem to work extremely well. I do have some concerns about our team. It's been long, it's been harsh, and the impact of COVID at the various levels of the organization has been very different. I'm maybe the fortunate generation, which is really the baby boomers who perhaps don't have kids to take care of it at home. Some of us are fortunate enough to have secondary properties and uh, generally uh, comfortable, but compared to the older generation who are legitimately and very scared for their health and even the younger generation, uh, millennials working through shoebox apartments and just dying to get back to the office. So the challenges are not consistent across the board. And we have to keep that in mind, uh, particularly with regard to kind of meeting goals and kind of setting what the business goals should be. There's a very strong personal influence that we have to keep in mind uh, as we work our way through COVID. On the technology side, I would say that we have managed to continue to advance on our kind of technology roadmap because we're not on site, because we're not face-to-face. Data has become even more important. Perhaps we have a little bit more time to look at that data too and look at the dashboards that are served up. It has been tough to innovate though. It has been tough to manage the change that introducing technology requires. And when you're training and you're trying to uh, push people onto using new tools and new platforms, it's really hard to do in a virtual world, I find. Casey, I don't know your thoughts. Well, I share your comments, but I'm going to start with the point you made earlier on, and that's really doubling down on the human impact. I mean, I don't think anybody had any of this in their playbook. We're in a business of designing disaster recovery plans and showing people what happens if a building goes out, how we keep your operations going, but we didn't plan on the world going out. So that really is a real challenge that we're still dealing with. But but the human toll on this is, honestly, I, I just don't believe that we understand fully yet what the impact is. And as we sort of get out of this in the coming months, I think that'll probably start showing its way. But back to the tech piece, 
For us, we pivoted fairly quickly as a company. You know, we were up and operational within uh, 24 hours to where we had 100% of our population remote. And then also we had hundreds of properties that we have under our care across the country, which we also needed to make sure that there was no interruption. And so getting information, advising our clients right out of the gate in terms of what's going on, what we're doing to be able to provide continuity and support of their business. Even though the buildings were empty, the buildings were still operational. And so you needed to make sure that they were in full care and, and in good order. And so that technology allowed us to do that fairly quickly. And then obviously, as Brett said, we got on to the Zoom and all sorts of different video platforms that I never knew existed. And I'm in tech. But I think to Brett's point about uh, innovation, we're an innovation company. And so as I kind of look at where we are today and 11 months into this, you know, we're basically somewhat treading water for those companies that had a good business plan, good business model, but you're still sustaining and perhaps even thriving. But those companies that are sitting with somewhat of a business model that's challenged or those perhaps that are in a non-essential service market, those are really struggling a lot. And I think we're still yet to see what the permanent impact of that is. And I'm sure we'll get a chance to chat about it later on in the hour. Yeah, well, Casey, I'll come back to you. And I'm just curious, one of the things that I think surprised most of us, if not all of us, is the productivity increase when working from home. I think the old adage was, if you let your employees work from home, they're going to be lazy and they'll be watching Netflix. But it turns out that's just not the case. And you actually end up spending more time at your computer. You're not wandering around trying to go to the water cooler and you lose 30 minutes. I I find our team, particularly at First National, everybody says they're way more productive And I'm curious how, if you've had conversations with your clients about what that means for their office use, what that means for their sort of implementation of technology now that presumably I think a lot of leaders in our industry are saying, well, maybe a a hybrid of work from home office makes sense. And how do you roll that into your new business thought process? Well, I think it's a story of probably month by month, you probably have a different demeanor. A month one, it's novel, it's cool, everybody jumps on. You can pretty much jump on a, on a digital platform and get going and conversing. Yeah, I think in the first month or two, it was hard to tell when the day started and when it ended. But as the months went on, I think what you're starting to see is fatigue, saturation, mental saturation. And so I think that part of it is not necessarily uh, what I would say... Uh, surprise, I think there's been some psychologists that have been forecasting that too much of anything is not good for you. And so when when your change of pace or change of location as you go from your living room to your dining room to your kitchen as a change of location, and that is really limiting your ability to socialize. I don't think digital platforms, like like again, in month one, month two, the perspective was uh, that it's novel, it's convenient, it's quick, I could do a lot more. And so therefore, hence your point about productivity. But as you're getting into the month 11th, and then looking at another four, five, six months, maybe even longer, you know, I think the effect on the human condition is starting to show its way. And so many of our customers are all talking about post-pandemic and is there going to be a hybrid model? Very likely. I think majority of the companies, what's the stat I heard? 65% of the uh, GTA area in Toronto is uh, essential services. So people have to go somewhere to the job. So we're really talking about 35%. And so if you look at them and they occupy offices and other locations that are discretionary uh, or non-essential, yeah, is there going to be a new balance? Absolutely. I think people will look at uh, as they unpack their business, see what 
what the impact is uh, to their operations and how their business is affected on a post-COVID. And do they need people full-time in their in their office? And I think all of those questions and many others uh, probably will get addressed as we go along. But hybrid, very likely. Are we going to go back to the way it was pre-COVID? Highly unlikely. Yeah, Casey, I agree with you 100%. I guess not surprisingly, considering what we do for a living, we are convinced that there is a need for office space and we will be back into the offices. But I think the word uh, flexibility comes out very strongly. And so with regard to how people use the space, both the physical layouts that we'll have and then the, the time spent in the office, it'll be very much adopted to the task at hand and the people who are doing the, the work. But what we've seen with COVID in many areas of, I think, society and uh, both technology is just this acceleration of previous trends. And I, I was on a soapbox for many years about the upcoming uh, death of the uh, commercial lease, which, if you think of it, is, is a concept that is a false construct to put tenants uh, in handcuffs. What a perfect business model. Put your client in handcuffs for 10 years and collect money from them. But we already started seeing that uh, corporations needed much more flexibility on their lease terms. And so as the years went by, shorter and shorter lease terms with more options to cancel, more flexibility to reduce. Why? Because it's so, uh, with the fast moving pace of change, it's extremely difficult to predict needs, your space requirements. And now COVID comes along and that's accelerated even more. And so... I see this need to have uh, flex space, flexible terms, flexible conditions, uh, space that's fully built out so the tenants can move in. We've launched a concept called Pronto Suites, which is just space available, furnished, take it, lease it for a month, six months, or three years, your choice. I think that is, uh, has accelerated and is probably you know, you know, going to become more of the norm than, than the exception. Brett, sorry, you got to be careful. Remember, you're talking to two lenders and we're all about durability and stability of cash flow. You start giving yeah. options to exit for tenants and that makes it really challenged for us to underwrite those things. Well, so. so I've had that debate with lenders and I've said to them very, very simply, do you ever lend against hotels? Right. Yeah, <laughs> but that's a whole. That's a totally different. Where hotels are covenant loans, where I'm I'm relying heavily on the operator. Well, so um, so it, yeah, you gotta you have to probably you gotta put us all in a room and lock us in there until you can change our minds because I think you're gonna have a, a long uphill battle to get. I mean, think about the CMBS model for those that are familiar. Yeah. The whole thing is just based on cash flow throughout. It's almost like a DCF model to figure out how much money they should be lending. But, but I don't disagree. I mean, I'm a lender, but I totally agree yeah. that this COVID is changing the way that we need to think about these types of old constructs. Casey, it sounds like you've got something to say. Yeah, I would add to what Brett's saying. I mean, the WeWorks uh, model, although flawed from the core and probably from the leadership, the model itself is probably sound if is applied. So if a company like Brett and uh, 10 others or 15 others take on, like, I mean, you take a look at what we brought to the table. They brought capital and a whole new flexibility into a renting model. I mean, quite frankly, didn't bring any assets. They had no skin in the game. So when you kind of look at it from that perspective, you know, I think the landlords and the asset owners are, are probably in a much better position to take advantage of that. I think we was a uh, you know, shot across the bow. Yeah, maybe it's not good to be the early adopter of a new trend. You know, maybe you want to be in the second <laughs> wave, the profitable wave, not, yeah, the, not why, the learning curve wave. Yeah, that's why they call it the bleeding edge. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I use the WeWorks as an example to contradict people when they say we're not going back to offices. Because if you think about it, all those 
small uh, gig workers and uh, entrepreneurs who actually went to the we environment, they could have all stayed home and worked at their kitchen table. So why did they go to we? Because they wanted to socialize, they wanted a place to meet, they wanted a different environment. So that supports the argument that the demand will be there. Well, I heard a term that I'd not heard before called the third space, right? And that is, I mean, it's, it's basically a fancy way of saying the office, the, the water cooler, right? That ability to have that incidental interaction that allows for decision-making and or idea-making, right? That you miss that working from home, sitting isolated. You don't have that incidental thing about just molecules bouncing off each other, right? That's really productive ultimately for businesses, right? Well, I think human psychology is, I mean, as a kid, my parents sent me to the room to reflect on the things I did wrong. And so our prime minister sent all of Canada to their homes for for the last 11 months. What did we do wrong? And we're not designed to be isolated. It's just not in our human DNA. We we demand socialization and we go to work. Most people meet their significant others at work. So it's our social dynamic to be able to be at work. And so, yeah, I think we're going to have some new flexibilities that we learned in the last 11 months. But yeah, to say that we're all going to be working from home and if I had uh, more kids, they're going to go to school online, they're going to get their job online and they're going to move from the basement to the new bedroom to, for a job. I mean, it's just socially, it's just, just not designed that way. Well, let's talk about the post-pandemic return to work. Let's assume that, of course, the vaccine rolls out in 2022. We're all happily back at the office for the most part. And we look back on this period now. You know, technology prior to the pandemic was already forced to be reckoned with. Real estate wasn't the most forward-thinking organizations, but it's definitely made its penetration into our industry. So fast forward over a year and a half of this pandemic experience, what technologies got left behind, which ones got fast-tracked and accelerated? I mean, Brett, you used the word acceleration a couple of times. On the tech side, what would you see coming out the big winners that would have not have gotten to where they are without the pandemic really either throwing gasoline on the fire or a uh, wet blanket? And I'll start with Brett because you used the word uh, acceleration. Yeah, um, it's a tough question to answer at a high-level perspective. I can only just kind of reflect on our organization. There is just a plethora like a mind-numbing number of prop tech solutions out there. Like I can't even keep up. It's like really tiring. I think I probably get three emails a day asking for an introductory meeting from some new prop tech. You know, for the most part, they're interesting, but I always kind of go, but I, I really need an ROI. And some of it's sexy and some of it's exciting. And sometimes it Im- improves, I guess, the visibility to what's happening. But I really need to see how it's going to make me money. Either it's going to make us more efficient, so we're going to get our people away from doing manual operations, or it's going to increase our revenue opportunities. And sometimes it's really hard to draw that line. And the other thing, which is, I guess, a little bit of a pet peeve, is that many of these prop tech initiatives are are really siloed solutions. Like, so for example, and speaking of getting back to the office with uh, COVID. We'd love to have more data about how offices are being used. So there's all sorts of sensor technology, whether it's in light fixtures or it's a little button that's placed on desks or it's a counting mechanism as people go through corridors of space or turnstiles. So that's great. You sign up, it works very well, and you get all sorts of data that you're supposed to work with. But the data just ends up on a human being's desk. And what I want to see is that that data is 
connected to goes directly to automatically to KC. It connects to the HVAC systems. It connects to the security systems. It makes the building react to changes in behavior and patterns. It informs the coffee shop downstairs that there are more people in the building. You better brew a second pot of coffee to serve them when they come on their lunch break. It advises the cleaning staff that there's two times the volume of people in the space from usual, so they better get upstairs. And so maybe that's my dream, but it's my pet peeve today that it just doesn't do it. And so then it comes to looking at the ROI on that technology. And I'm just picking on that particular piece of technology, but it's, it's all kind of fits in the same bucket. It's really hard to say, yeah, it's worth investing in this one and disrupting my team to install it and deploy it and decide what to do with it when I can't really make that linear argument as to how it automates to directly to an ROI. Casey? Well, I'm not sure if I could add any more to that. I'm buying what he's selling, so I'm in. <laughs> well, can I can I add a variable to this? Because this is something yeah. that's come up regularly yeah. in some of the interviews that Adam and I have conducted, where we talk to some of these major landlords, developers, national, multinational, who are all focused on this. I mean, it's no secret that clearly investment in technology is something that everybody's got to do. But they do it in these silos. There's no real sharing. I mean, I'll throw Michael Cooper's name out there because I'm sure he wouldn't mind. But, you know, he's got a, I mean, his daughter is involved in prop tech innovation and he's focused very heavily on what can he do to make his buildings more sophisticated. But he's also not willing to share those wins with his competitors or yeah. with other developers. So you got all these people. I'll answer that one first. Uh, sure. I mean, I'm uh, lending time to uh, various uh, causes. BOMA, for instance, uh, I help BOMA Toronto uh, curate a uh, program called Next Tech. And the idea is just that, transfer knowledge, educate, so that I get a privilege to chat with Brett. And Brett looks at the world very differently than many. And so he visionary guy. This is what he wants to see. So you know what? If I can't answer his call for return on investment and then also look at the, his whole portfolio, portfolio or his whole building, and rather than a point solution, then I really have no right to be there. And I think that's the first starting point. I think you got to get to that. But to do that, we've spent, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of properties that we have under our care. There's a lot of knowledge transfer that needs to happen at the property level. You know, a lot of the leadership have the vision, have the sort of the strategies, uh, ideas. And we have a program that we work with my team that we go in, we help build playbooks so that what Brett's talking about, that integrated view of his uh, building or his portfolio, we're not going in with a silo approach. But at times, we may need to go in and and do something because the property is occupied, so you can't do a fully integrated retrofit. You might have to do something temporary or something that's in stages that gets you to that final strategy. But in terms of just sharing that knowledge, we've got to educate the industry in terms of technology's role and function. I think uh, Brett did an eloquent job in narrating some of the, the troubles and issues that come up. It's not a point solution, but the industry has grown up that way. It says, you need an HVAC, we'll install an HVAC. You need an elevator, we'll replace an elevator. It's not been integrated. And so part of our strategy in the industry is is not only to help platforms like BOMA and others where we uh, spend some time in just transferring knowledge so that the good questions can be asked, knowledge and understanding how the technology impacts uh, the day-to-day operations and where it fits in and where it doesn't and how to prioritize uh, things and events. And so when you have that working knowledge, then when somebody comes in with a prop tech idea, you sort of have a, a set of questions of saying, yeah, not right now or right now, please. So Casey, can I ask you a question just as a follow-up? So no, 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 no. We ask the questions, Brett. You're not allowed to ask any questions. (laughs) Don't forget, he's my professor in technology. 
do you ever see the industry coming together to, to work on the same platform? You know, like almost an industry-wide ERP system that is fully integrated, or we can all have to do it on our own? What does ERP stand for? Just for those listeners that may not understand that acronym. Enterprise something. Resource. Uh, yeah. Program. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think common platforms, definitely that's the, the way of the future. We're seeing that right now in cloud computing. So that's really, that's where the destination is. But the problem is, is how your buildings were built. They were never built with a commonality in mind. There's no standards to start off with. On average, the real estate uh, CRE, regardless, uh, multi-use or what have you, 35 years of age. So when you look back 35 years ago, they weren't building with smart buildings in mind. They weren't building with a common operating platform. Back then, 30, 40 years ago, you had people operating the elevator, taking you up and down to whatever floor you wanted. But our thinking today is far, far more advanced. Uh, Technology's uh, ability to extract data to help you to get to that common platform. Yeah, I could see that getting to a common platform, certainly on the operation side. uh, If you are able to reduce your operating cost per square foot by 40-50%, it won't be a secret for long, so why not just start the whole industry there? And so I think that standards, uh, which is what we're promoting, uh, open architecture, which is what we're promoting, these are all things that stop you from having these silos. And that's how how this industry was built. It was built really with proprietary in mind. And so we're kind of the myth busters. We kind of the disruptor to the norm of uh, sort of uh, implementation. And so we like to cut across the different silos. And so we create a common platform that is available to Brett, that is available to any of his uh, industry peers. And especially you guys change hands with your real estate. You'll sell it to somebody or, or your co-owners. You almost have to build that in to the strategy of smart buildings to have a platform that is open architecture to everybody. Well, I've got to follow up to Brett's question then on the data sharing. In the early days of our podcast, which was launched in 2016, we had a gentleman on the podcast named Abhishek Sinha. We talked about blockchain and Aaron and I were very excited and thought it sounded very cool. I know five years has elapsed. And when you talk to anybody who knows, and not that Aaron and I know, but we know enough that it's interesting, is that there's not been any sort of advancements. But that platform with verifiable shared data sounds perfect. So why is it not getting traction in our real estate world? So blockchain works really well in a mature data set. So if I take blockchain and I put it into financial systems, uh, M1, M2, whatever, money networks and so on, I mean, the data sets are all pretty much defined. And so we're able to manage that. But when you get into buildings, you literally have to use a sledgehammer and a pickaxe to dig out the data. It was never really designed for advanced operations. And so the hardest thing for us to do is when we get into a building environment and we're extracting data from the various systems, it's really bring it in, provide it some standards, uh, apply some uh, naming conventions and make it usable for multidisciplinary things, which kind of feeds the point that Brett was making it with regards to commonality and platforms. That's the only way to do it. And that's the only way you're going to get blockchain to be an effective tool. Because right now it is a great tool and it does have an opportunity to be used here. But the data sets that we have that we're pulling out of these buildings are so primitive. No, it's just not, not usable. That's the only reason, really. But I could see, uh, it seems like it should be around the corner. Like you think of smart contracts, particularly for like the transaction process, uh, due diligence. I could see it in your field. uh, Oh, big time. Think about lawyers, right? The use of uh, lawyers. Yeah, yeah, so loans and the whole transaction process around loans and then the reporting on those loans. It seems like it's low-hanging fruit. I'm surprised it hasn't happened faster. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I, would, I would agree with Brad. I mean, there's pretty defined processes. You guys have protocols in lending. You have protocols in contracts, authorities. Well, yeah, think of the that. conditions, precedents, right? Like yeah. there are here are the 30 things you must do in order for you yeah. to access the cash. So satisfy yeah. them through a smart contract and the money's wired directly to you with invoices to all the parties that need to be coordinated. No, I, I trust me, I run the operations at First National. So it's something that's heavily on our mind, but it, it just, it really... The infrastructure or the third parties that can provide that support just haven't yeah. really sur- surfaced yet. Brett, I want to give you an opportunity because it was something that we had always, I think we already put the hook in earlier about just your digital transformation and maybe talk about what that was, was what that's for and, and you know what technologies you've used that maybe people would find interesting. Yeah, thanks. So, so you know, over the last two years, we have been on a bit of a journey. Really, I would say we were a Two years ago, very similar to many real estate companies out there that had, you know, been built over over time, and which resulted in siloed departments. So, your property management, leasing, uh, legal, finance, accounting, investment uh, analysis, all running with their own Excel spreadsheets, data that was held within certain departments, and then very manual processes. And so I actually arrived and I said to I said, who every day does you know, manual repetitive tasks that requires no thought? And 100% of our, of our staff raised their hands. <laughs> and I said, do you like doing that? Do you enjoy that? <laughs> and so I said, well, if you're doing it, why? Because we certainly have technology out there that can replace that. And so we moved to the idea of uh, a first strategic level, and, and Casey helped me with a lot of the thinking in terms of what was our technology roadmap. And we've been on this kind of journey, checking off the boxes as we go along. The first, which seems very simple, is just looking at our payment, you know, receivables and payables. In the previous world, I think one of the stats that shocked me was we had 11,000 checks that were signed by two people, and they were all for less than $1,000, 11,000 checks a year for less than $1,000 that had to be signed by two people, photocopied and filed, right? So <laughs> once you, uh, I mean, I'm making us sound a bit uh, outdated because that should have probably corrected years ago, but that's low-hanging fruit. We actually had people on staff called, uh, uh, you know, filing clerks. So we gave those people much more interesting jobs and they now do something else. But so we've gone through the list from the, the payments, to um, everything around people management and HRIS system, human resources information systems, so that from cradle to grave, from the moment we put out a job offer to the moment we sign them up to benefits, 24-hour self-consultation service so that it improves the, the employee experience plus the data that we have to the way we manage expenses as opposed to putting it in Excel. It's all an automated process with automated deposits in the bank accounts. The biggest change is really moving We've been agnostic with regard to our property management platform. So we use both uh, Yardi and MRI, but can tie the information together through an API layer. And we move from bespoke systems on those platforms to cloud versions. And so now it's uh, mainstream and it's much more fluid from a data perspective. And now we're just making the step to go through kind of SharePoint to have shared data across the entire organization. My dream is that as soon as there's one piece of information, you know, even if it's from the square feet on a listing flyer, if we buy that building and it goes through our system, through leasing, through property management, through finance and accounting, no one is ever going to touch that piece of data again. It sits in our system and it's quality controlled and, and protected. And then obviously the visibility to this information through systems like Tableau 
we made the decision to not kind of go for one of these big holistic ERP systems, but really stitch things together, kind of best-in-class apps and software, all with a kind of API data sharing layers, which is tough to pull together, but I think it gives us a more flexible kind of overall uh, environment. And then there's all of the the various uh, solutions like Honest Buildings or VTS or FindSpace or Angus Anywhere or Argus. And once again, not having them sit on a desktop, all contributing off the same data set and sharing that information. We're not all the way there. And I imagine once we get to the end, we hit the start button again because things will have changed. Casey, I'll get some free consulting years. <laughs> what do you think about that approach? Well, I think it's great. I mean, I, you know what? I mean, you've, if you kind of look at the business of real estate, it, honestly, it's, there's an operating component, which is what we focus in on. And then the front side of the business where you're talking to your tenants and your investors and co-owners. I mean, modernizing that piece is so key and important. Absolutely. But one thing you touched upon is, you know, talking about the Excel spreadsheet experience you had. Generally speaking, when I show up or my company or my team shows up into an environment where we're introducing tech, it's never, if you kind of get past the surface, it's never about the tech. It's about the fear. Most people are so scared and the industry is not helping at all because they're saying, hey, you know, AI, machine learning. And so everybody looks up the definition of AI and says, hey, that's my job. And so the reality is, is that sort of the humans will occupy the big thinking chairs for quite some time to come. I would venture to see another hundred years at least before a machine is going to do my job or Brett's job. And yeah, hundred years is probably cards way out because I don't want to debate the fact that potentially that could be earlier or later. It's highly unlikely that machines are going to do anything other than what we program them to do. And I think that's the whole point is that Brett's touched upon it and I have as well so far, is that when you look at uh, technology's role, it really is uh, driving productivity and efficiency and uh, finding the fastest way to money. We can do things more productive. We can do things more efficiently. There was a study by, uh, I think it was McKenzie or there's a handful of these studies. And the study goes something like this. They look at pretty much every class of job out there, right? From a CEO to somebody working in a property, or, and it's not just real estate related. And what they looked at and say, okay, in the course of a week, in the course of a day, a month, a year, how much time are you spending looking for information, not doing your job, but actually looking for things that are pointless. And, you know, you should be able to, Brett's point, press a carriage return and there's the information I need. So I can now do the job that I've been hired to do is to make decision, help nurture the business. And so when we look at, from our perspective, when we help operationalize our property, what we're doing is that we're extracting the data, make it usable and actually put it at the fingertips of the people who are actually operating the building. And so they don't spend that 35% of their day looking for information. It's there for them. And it's also near real time. So you know if a building is sick or about to be sick, that you should take some action. I'm glad to hear the 100-year time frame. So the Terminator <laughs> nightmare won't be no. anytime soon, but that's I'll good to that. hear. <laughs> <laughs> Brett, you mentioned you're working on upgrading your software systems. And by the time you complete that job, you have to start all over again. But as buildings become hardware, as they become part of this platform, do you worry about buildings that you're building now that you know are smart buildings that if they become antiquated over 10 years' time from a technology standpoint, that upgrading hardware, since that would be the building at that point, might be a little trickier than updating software. You know, I, I had that conversation with our team as recently as this morning. We're designing a fairly complex project and we'll be delivering most likely eight to 10 years from now. Yet the thinking we're using is eight to 10 years old. And frankly, it's frustrating to get people to think kind of outside the box. 
And so the question is, I, I don't know. As Casey said, it, it takes a lot of courage to adopt something new. You talk about all sorts of construction techniques from modular to, uh, to prefab to timber construction. We're looking at it. We're not there yet. But by the time we're delivering our product, maybe we'll be outdated. And so it's very important to introduce that way of thinking into uh, the company culture. And so uh, we're working on it. Such an interesting dilemma, right, for you when your delivery timeframes are eight to 10 years and yet technology is just picking up speed faster and faster and faster. So how do you, how do you future-proof something when you don't know what the future is going to contain? Like That's, I think, more and more challenging for you and your counterparts. We're almost at the end of sort of the discussion period. I've got one last question for each of you. So I guess, guys, we've had a lot of different conversations and, and meandered through all sorts of different technologies. And so I kind of wanted to open it up a little bit. And I'll go to you first, Brett, and we'll finish with Casey. Brett, we talked about a bunch of stuff before on our pre-call from AI to blockchain to you know machine learning to 3D printing. Like, What is the technology that maybe you're the most excited about that you think will have the biggest impact on the real estate and maybe the greatest return? I know you're so focused on ROI. Which one do you see at some point in the future really kind of bearing the most amount of fruit? Yeah, good question. There are lots out there. I would say I'm quite excited about uh, the experiments we're conducting with AI, particularly with regard to forecasting demand models in the residential space. So you look at, once again, we're designing a building, we're getting the entitlement, uh, getting zoning, and then we're going to go into a sales process. And what is the right price point for the client? What is the right one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms with what kind of amenities? And we're actually working with a UK-based, UK and Canadian-based AI company that is uh, pulling together all of these kind of behavioral data, demographics, immigration stats, economic data, stuff from TREB, and helping us to create the mathematic models that seem to hold up based on our past data and past performance and extrapolating forward. I don't think it'll ever make a decision for us. But if it can iron out the edges by saying, hey, at this extremity, you're making a mistake or, you, you know, this looks really good and we can orient in certain directions. I think that has a tremendous impact because it's crazy to say that we digest a lot of the data and then we still make almost a gut level decisions. We have conviction. We say we have conviction. I'm convinced. But I want to be more convinced using uh, kind of some tools to help me do so. How about you, Casey? What's got you the most excited? Uh, we're on a path of data right now. With that, we kind of look at data as sort of the new currency. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of advanced marketing on it, but when you get to the implementation stages, uh, we're probably the marketing's maybe three, four years ahead of the reality. But what we're seeing is uh, the marketing's right. The opportunity to uh, get uh, information and use it in multiple ways. So we talked a little bit about the silos, the way the industry, real estate industries grew up and how it's serviced today even, is still in very much in silos. But if you converge and integrate all that data, you're really creating sort of that next generation of asset, maybe a new utility in the building. And if you take a look at the value of data in markets, what are the top highest market cap companies? They're not telecom companies. They're not utility companies. They're information companies like a Google and Facebook and so forth. And so when you look at the communities that we're servicing, the real estate is servicing, and what we're doing with automation and where data recovery and use, we think that there's potentially a new opportunity revenue models to uh, to gain from. You know, People come to work. People will continue to come to work regardless of what pandemic outcome and the aftermath of that is. We will 
find a new normal for ourselves and we will go to places of work and we will want to socialize. And all of that information, whether it's building centric or community centric, you know what, it really is something that is the new currency. And I think the real estate companies are sitting on literally on a gold mine. Thank you so much, everybody. Join us for the thinking today with uh, Casey Wickowitz and Brett Miller. Thanks to you both for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank thanks, you. guys. Appreciate it. Take thanks, care. thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Al. Appreciate you guys doing this for us. Hey, everybody. That's the end of our interview that we did with the Ref Club. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.